When we look at the church, we have to wonder if what it looks like today reflects the designer's original inspiration. At the heart, the church stands for love, hope, faith, and goodness for all the world. Cathedrals and basilicas and sanctuaries can be the most beautiful buildings on earth. But for some, the church represents judgment and hypocrisy and division. For others, it's just filled with people who set an unattainable standard for living the perfect life, saying things like, only the righteous belong. So what is the church really? If the original design and intention was so perfectly pure, then maybe whatever is wrong with it is really something wrong with us. Welcome to 514 Church, and I want to welcome everybody who is watching online. Today we're starting this new series, Scaffolding. And if you've ever uh, been around some construction projects, you know that a lot of times scaffolding is put up. It's these, these uh, apparatus that they put around buildings to put up blocks or put up uh, bricks around the outside of a building. And I was in New York City, and there was scaffolding all over some buildings that had been there for a, a long time because they weren't building new buildings. They were actually taking away pieces of buildings and trying to find the original intention and get back to the original design because over the years things had been added. And with scaffolding, what we're going to do is we are going to examine the foundation and the original intention of the church. And so I want you to think about uh, the church and you and me being a building and maybe some designers or some uh, construction workers saying, okay, we're going to set up some scaffolding and we are going to pull away whatever exists and try to get to the heart of what this thing is called the local church. What was it originally designed to look like? What is it supposed to feel like? What is your role in it? Why are you here? You see, for hundreds of years since the church began, there have been things that have been added to the creator of the church to God's original design. When I was in Florence in 2005, I went to a place uh, that had an amazing church called Santa Maria Novella. And this church means, in the name of it means, uh, Saint Mary the New. And in Florence, when these merchants would be traveling, they would pass this church on the way in. And when they saw it, it had a facade that was so different than anything they had seen before. It was beautiful. This is a Renaissance facade. And when they saw it, they thought, wow, I've never seen a church like that. I've never experienced that. And it was something that marked the entrance into a place, Florence, that represented art and beauty and future and creation and design and all the different pieces that made the Renaissance beautiful. But when you look closer at Santa Maria Novella or St. Mary the New, you notice that actually what it is, is it's, it's a Gothic church that had been built hundreds of years before. And then when the Renaissance people came along, they added a facade. They added something to it. So there was the original church, and then there was an addition. There was something added to it. There was something to make it more beautiful. There was something to update it. There was something to pull people in. When people saw that facade, they went, wow, maybe this is different than I thought. 
But what can happen with a church like this or with the church is that we can fall in love with the additional pieces and not the foundation. We can engage in our spiritual life based upon something that wasn't designed for us to engage in. And it doesn't mean that the facade is bad. It doesn't mean that the entryway is bad. It doesn't mean that it's worthless. It doesn't mean it's not beautiful. It could be good or bad. It just means that we're not supposed to fall in love with the facade. We're not supposed to fall in love with the entryway. We're not supposed to fall in love with the pathway. We're supposed to strip it away. We're supposed to put scaffolding up over our hearts, over our minds, and over this meeting and say, what is the church about and what is it built upon? That's why this question, why are you here, is so important. Because if you can't answer that question, if you don't know what the designer's original intent was, you may miss the most important relationship, the most important experience you've ever had. You see, the truth is, is that the church is not built on my message today. The church is not built on the music. The church is not built on what it feels like in this room. The church is not built on what the website looks like. The church is not built on any of the people who are here especially me or the small group leaders. The church is not built on a building. It is, in fact, not a building, and many people think it is. The church is not built on the way we communicate or the things we say or how they're said. No, the church is, in fact, built on one thing and one thing alone, and that is Jesus. The church is built on Jesus. If you want to know if a church is built on the right thing, then you have to examine it and you have to put scaffolding up around it and go, what was really supposed to be here? What is this really about? And what you'll find is a lot of some things. You'll find pastors, you'll find followers, you'll find messages, you'll find music, you'll find meetings. But when you strip it all the way back, you'll find that the church is simply built on Jesus plus Nothing else, nothing else in the world makes up this church and builds this church. It's the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when we start to look at all the somethings that get added to Jesus, the scary thing is, is that we can fall in love with the somethings more than we fall in love with Jesus. You see, when the church first started, there were a group of people who were with Jesus, and, and you know the story, it's these, these 12 apostles or these 12 closest disciples. And these men followed Jesus in a time when following Jesus was against the law. And after Jesus died and rose from the dead, they believed that he was the king. They believed that Jesus was God. And in a Roman society, that meant that the emperor wasn't divine because Jesus was divine. And that the emperor wasn't the king because Jesus was the king. And these men who followed Jesus, they went out and they gave everything they have because of Jesus. To put it another way, they had Jesus plus nothing else. And they gave their lives for that cause. In 1950, Pope Pius announced that after a 10-year excavation, so we go from scaffolding and what is it to excavating into the ground, what is the church built upon, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, 
was built upon a gravesite because what they would do in the early church is they would take martyrs, people who died for their faith, and they would put churches over top of it. So they thought that the bones of Peter would be underneath the church because a lot of them believed that the church was built on Peter. They believed that the person of Peter was the foundation of the church, and they get that from a passage in Matthew. So when they excavated for the bones, they found a man's bones from the first century, carbon dated them back to that, and they put it all together, and they found a a large man who would have been older, and they found every bone except his feet. Because Peter was so in love with Jesus, and he was so bought into the Jesus plus nothing idea and truth of the church, that when he went to Rome, and the Romans were crucifying and persecuting and killing Christians because they believed that Jesus was divine and they believed that Jesus was the savior and a king against Roman emperors, they believed that. He was crucified, but he said, I don't wanna be crucified the way Jesus was, which was right side up. He was crucified upside down. And when they crucified people upside down, he said, I don't wanna be crucified like Jesus because I don't deserve to be crucified like Jesus. hang him on a cross and they'd tie his feet to the top and they would tie people's feet to the top. And then when they were dead, they would cut off their feet. And so people who were crucified upside down would be buried with no feet. And when they found these bones underneath, a lot of people think those bones represented the foundation of the church, like that's what the church is built on, on a person or these close disciples or on a message or on a a plan to get the gospel out. But what Peter represents to you and me, is that the church, the church, is built upon Jesus and his bones are not the foundation of the church, but a representation of someone who was committed to Jesus plus nothing. After Peter died in 64 AD, for almost another 250 years, the church, or 150 years plus, the church believed in Jesus plus nothing. They were persecuted all the time. In fact, there was so much persecution that people would give up their lives and their families because they didn't want Christianity to continue to be spread because the people of God were worshiping Jesus instead of worshiping the Rome, the Roman Empire. In fact, in 300, one of the Roman emperors, Decletion, he said, I'm sick of people not giving me the credit like I'm God or that I'm not divine. So these Christians need to be snuffed out. And he started for a season of his life towards the end of his reign, the great persecution, where people were literally killed in the streets, burnt alive, hung, uh, hung upside down, set on fire, skinned alive. These people gave up everything. There's a story of one of the martyrs during this time of a man named Tim and his wife, Mara. They were married for three weeks. Now, this is a little bit gruesome, but what it does is it it shows us how committed they were to Jesus plus nothing because they lost everything. And it's believed that this Tim, this Timothy character, that he had a, a version of some part of the scriptures. And so when the emperors declared that Christianity was illegal and they started to, to persecute them and kill them, they found this man and they told him, you need to give up the scriptures. And he said, even if I had children, I would give up my children before I give up these scriptures. And they said, well, if you don't give up these scriptures, we're going to gouge your eyes out because we will not allow you to read them. And he said, go ahead and gouge my eyes out. Then 
They hung him upside down and they brought his wife to him and they said, make him denounce Christianity. And she pleaded with him. And at the time he had a rag shoved in his mouth and they said, now's your chance. Now's your chance to denounce. If you don't denounce Christianity, we're gonna do to, you, to, to your wife what we just did to you. And they pulled the rag out of his mouth and he said, Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that moment, they then took the wife and they tortured her the same way and then they took them to the open square and they crucified them in the middle of town to show everybody this Jesus character is not ever gonna be the king. But what it represented was a group of people that lost everything. There was nothing that they had that stopped them or confused them or took them off their worship of Jesus because they wanted to worship Jesus plus nothing. Right after that, Constantine became the emperor and he started at the Edict of Milan a level of benevolence for Christians. In fact, he ordered it that it wasn't illegal to be Christians anymore. And he started to give them back their property and give them back their scriptures and give them back their places of, of worship and give them kind of an ability to have fair trade and market and engage in, in the world. And a lot of people believe that when Constantine, the emperor of Rome, made Christianity legal, they believed that that was kind of the beginning of the explosive church as it wrapped around the world and the whole Western world became Christian. But there are a lot of people that think that when Constantine made Christianity um, part of his belief and then later on the next emperor, or the emperor in 380 made it actually like a sacred religion or the religion of Rome, that that was actually something that hurt the church because what happened in that moment when Constantine started to give them their property back, their right to worship, their places, is that people, and we've been doing this for uh, 1,700 years plus, that people have been grabbing a hold of something else other than Jesus. Constantine introduced the Jesus plus approach to follow and worshiping Jesus. You see, for 300 years it was Jesus plus nothing. Take my life. Jesus is everything. The apostles said things like, for me to live is Christ and to die is even better. It's to gain. And so the church started with this pure approach to Jesus is our, 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 our rock. Jesus is our foundation. We'll give our life for Jesus. Constantine comes along and says, here you go. Now you can worship Jesus. And a lot of people, just like that church, they've fallen in love with the something else. They've fallen in love with the facade. They've fallen in love with, with something else, something other than what it's really all about. Jesus plus something. What is it? What's your something? Like, what are you really here for today? You know, if you're visiting, and this is intense, whoa, this is, wow, I don't know, like, but as followers of Christ, has the church become something that is not about Christ? Has the church become something that is for you and you alone? What is really driving you? You know, a lot of us worship Jesus because we're allowed to or because we're, we're told by our parents that we should. A lot of people could sum up their faith and not even necessarily have quantified it this way, but say that, you know, Jesus, you know, for me is great, but it's easy, it's comfortable to worship Jesus. In America, 
What other choice? The church is down the road. They have air conditioning. There are certain people that have bought into the church and bought into the person of Jesus Christ for the entertainment. And the, these are things that, these are all moral things, not necessarily bad and not necessarily good. And a lot of people have, have used certain phrasing and entertainment or saying certain things. And, and at 514 Church, we, we believe in trying to do different things to get people to have a relationship with Jesus. But if you grab onto the facade, if you grab onto the something, and you don't grab onto Jesus, you're in trouble. A lot of people are here today not because of Jesus, but because of something that you're going to get. Just something, just something that you're going to get. You're going to get the message. You're going to get worship. You're going to get something. You're going to get coffee at church. There's nothing wrong with coffee at church. But we are not about coffee. We're not about doing songs in a certain way just to do them. We are doing everything we can to build streams and rivers and roadways and pathways into a personal dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And once you grab a hold of that, that's what will change you. The church is Jesus plus nothing. What are you grabbing onto? Why are you here? It's Jesus plus nothing. And to understand that, we have to go back and look at when Jesus set this whole thing up. So I'm going to give us a, a history lesson, if you will, to remind us how this is, in fact, the truth and how for us to be 514 Church, to grow, to reach, to be, we have to be unequivocally committed to this idea, Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. That is the goal for our faith, is to have people know Jesus, follow Jesus, and become little Christs and not fall in love with the wrong things. In Matthew chapter 16, and I want to encourage you, if you have your, your Bible on your phone, you can open it up right now. If you have a, uh, our app, we have a Bible app, and you can open it up and you can start to read through this for yourself. And I, I just encourage you that this passage is one of the most uh, wonderful uh, prophecies, if you will, because in this passage, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to paint a picture of you and me. So there's a lot of prophecies in the Bible that are about Jesus, that are about things to come. But what Jesus does here is he talks about you, you and me. And so it's like, whoa, like there's a passage in here where Jesus for a second goes, I, I've been thinking about them. I got something for them. I want to lead them. I want to talk about them. You didn't know that you were talked about in the Bible. If you're in the local church, if you have a faith in Christ that's real, then Jesus talked about you 2,000 years ago. In Matthew, he's with his disciples, and it's very hard to quantify how um, amazing this moment is when Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. What happens is they turn north after doing a bunch of miracles. And they turn uh, to this city that's 25 miles north of, of Jerusalem and of, of, of the region that they spent most of their time around, Galilean. They, they start walking up there. And when they're walking up there, they're walking to a pagan city. And in this pagan city, they worship mainly this god named Pan. And he's the god of of panic, it's where we get the word from. It's the idea of like theatrical response. 
And so they're walking to this, this place where people don't worship Jesus and they don't worship the God of Israel. And also the name of this city has been renamed by the recent governor of the city. And so a lot of cities in, in this time and in this region and this part of the world would get renamed all the time based upon whoever was in charge. And so the leader of that area, the, 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 uh, they call him the governor of that area, would come in and find a city and they'd put their name on it and then put someone else's name on it. That way they would bring honor to themselves. And recently this city that they're going to had been renamed. And so when Jesus is walking with them to a place full of people who don't worship God, and don't believe that Jesus is God. They're also talking about maybe a renaming of this city that they're going to. And they're having a discussion specifically about names. Because names mean something. And specifically the name of Jesus means everything. And he is using this whole trip and this setup. And the dialogue about the naming of this place they're going. To bring weight to what he's about to teach them. And so he says this. It says this in Matthew, says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is the new name for this region. This, this uh, emperor, uh, leader, Philippi, he kind of went and, uh, and it, Philip is his name, and he renamed it to give honor to, to Rome and to give honor to himself. And Jesus asked his disciple, who do people say the son of man is? Who do people say the son of man is? They're on their way to a bunch of people that don't know who he is. And he wants to know what the people in Israel think he is. What do the people in Israel? Now, the people we're going to, they don't know who I am. They're not going to know who I am until they get told. But what do the people who have been around me say that I am? What do they think? Where are they in this whole conversation? Because we've been around and we've done some miracles. Who do they say that I am? What are you guys hearing is really the, the question that he asks and he, he says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now when they say this, they go, you know, people know you're important because these are really important things. And these people all had followers. So a lot of people would follow John the Baptist and believed in, in, in Elijah. And Jeremiah was the weeping prophet to the nation of Israel. And he impacted a lot of people. And so to say that, that people think that Jesus were was maybe one of these guys or like one of these guys, is to say to him, he's really important. They think you're really important. And a lot of people come to church because it's important. Because he's one of, Jesus is one of, he's something. He matters somewhat. But what Jesus does is he goes, okay, for this message to really get clarified, for us to get to the, the core, I have to put some scaffolding up and get to you. I have to get to you guys and strip away what other people might think. What do they really think? What do they really believe? You guys, you 12, what do you think and who do you say that I am? And that's the question that he asked, and that is the question for you and me. Who do you say that Jesus is? Really, who is he? Because in that answer, Hangs everything. And Jesus takes this time to go, I'm going to teach you what matters more than anything else. Who do you guys, you 12 who have been with me, say who I am? You get the picture here like they're getting ready to go. 
up into this region where people don't know who he is. And if they go up into that region and they go and say, he's another prophet, he's like Elijah, he's important because these are renowned people whose identities transcended their specific region. But if people grab on to he's Elijah or people grab on to he's Jeremiah, then they're gonna miss what it's really all about. They might grab on to a person of the faith, but they're not gonna grab on to the real deal. So who do you say that I am? This is important. The answer is everything. And then Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now the weight in this phrase right here could not be overstated. When Peter says you are the Messiah, he immediately connects what other people think Jesus is to who he really is and makes an absolute contrast. You see, all of these guys mentioned before, John the Baptist, he came to point to the Messiah. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament that represented God's miraculous love for the people of God. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who brought restoration and repentance ideas to the people. And all of those people, John the Baptist, Elijah, they were looking for the Messiah. They were teaching that one day, the Messiah would come. And so when Peter says, they think you're this, and people might grab onto this, but I think you're this, the Messiah, which in other words means you are the savior of the world. You are not a prophet. You are not just someone. You are the savior. You are the one whom people who are separated from God all around the world, when they put their faith in you, will wipe away their sins and bring them hope. When he says this, it's like, whoa, this is a big statement to point at a man and say, that's the Messiah, that's the savior of the world. So he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, which means you are divine. You are a savior and you are God. You are the savior of the world and you are God. As soon as this phrase gets mentioned, you can just kind of imagine that the disciples are walking and then they stop. And Jesus says this, and this is huge. You cannot look at this enough. Jesus stops and he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father. In other words, what you just said is so powerful it's as if God said it through you. It's as if, if God wanted to bring a message to the people of earth, to the people closest to me, the message that he would say is that I am God. I am God. And you knowing that means that God just used you, Peter, to bring the most important fundamental idea, truth, and reality that earth will ever experience, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah and he is God in the flesh. You just said it. It's as if God opened up heaven and just put on a show and spoke to the earth. Jesus is God. And then he goes on, and he, he brings us to the, to the weight of this. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. It's really kind of a fun interaction because what's happening here is Jesus goes, who do people say that I am? 
Oh, some people think you're John the Baptist and Elijah. And then he goes, who do people say that, who do you say that I am? And they go, we think you're the Messiah. And he goes, oh, so we're doing the, we're, 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 I've been setting you up this whole time to do like a name game. And then he goes, now I'm going to name you again. Now the name Peter was not Peter's original name. He changed his name earlier as if for this moment to bring it full circle as like a foreshadowing. So he's like, who do people say? Who do you say? And then he, he says, and you, you just called me Messiah and you just called me Savior, but you are Peter. And when he says Peter, you and I go, well, that's just a normal name. But actually in the original language, it's the word small pebble. Just get the, just get the disparity. Who do, who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for for thousands of years, and you're God in the flesh. Whoa. Oh, yeah, and you're just Peter. You're, you're just Peter. You're, just, you're just, a little, just a little stone. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, a lot of people for a long time and still today believe that when Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my church. They believe that this rock represents Peter. They're convinced that when Jesus said, I will build my church, that he said, I will build my church on a little pebble. And what they don't know is that Jesus is not referring, when it says in the original language, is this rock is not referring to a little stone or a stumbling block is what Peter gets called later, just a section later, you can go read about it, but that this rock actually represents this statement of belief. And in this statement, he says, I am going to build my church on when people confess two things, that Jesus is the Savior, my Savior, and that Jesus is God. That right there, is the cornerstone of the local church. You see, for thousands of years, people have met for different reasons. People have believed that Peter was, was the stone. People have believed that communication styles or different preachers were the stone. People have believed that different leadership were the stone. But what Jesus says right here is that even probably the next most influential guy in the history of the church, save Paul and Peter, when you go to St. Peter's Cathedral, there's two statues of disciples or followers or apostles of Jesus, Peter and Paul. Even the next closest guy is just something. You don't hold on to him. He is not what builds the church. I am what builds the church. And when he says, I will build my church, the word church here is the word ecclesia. Now, when you see the word church here in Matthew, it's the first time that the word church is in the New Testament. And it's actually not the word church. It's a, it's a bad translation. Because the word in the original language is this word ecclesia, which means gathering. Well, after the word church and and ecclesia was kind of mismatched over the years, the Germans came along and inter interpreted the ecclesia as a place where the people of God gather, which in their language was the word building. And so in our translations, we still see today that it says I will build my building upon this phrase. But it's not what it is because the church is not a building. What Jesus says here is I'm gonna build a gathering of people. A gathering of people. And when he says the word ecclesia, 
It's such a powerful, powerful phrase for what a gathering of people looks like because the word ecclesia means purposeful gathering of people. When they said this, the disciples thought this. Okay, an ecclesia, a gathering. In their mind, ecclesias were armies, armies that would march together in a unified purpose with a unified goal to defeat an enemy or a political gathering. And Jesus says, I'm going to get built a group of people with a unified purpose around me. From this day forward, you guys will gather around what Peter just said. Peter just said, the small stone just said, Jesus is Messiah and Jesus is God. And from this day forward, I am going to build my church on that phrase. So when people engage me and believe that I am the Messiah, the Savior, they believe that I am God, then I will add them to my assembly. What this means is that the church is built on Jesus plus nothing. You sit here today as a member of the church, not just if you're here, not if you've grabbed onto something else, but if you have fallen in love with the person of Jesus, if you have asked him to forgive you of your sins and you declare that he is God and you worship him, that's the church. And everything else is suspect at times. And we have to look and see if it's a tool that's useful. Here's another way to put it. Jesus is built on the church plus nothing. Jesus is God and he saved me. When you say that phrase, you are part of the gathering. Now, when you go to a mall, I was at Polaris the other day, and I was looking for Abercrombie because it's a new building, and I didn't know where it was, and I went up. Is that, I, it's fine, I went to Abercrombie, right? Everyone's okay? Okay. So I went to Abercrombie, and I couldn't find it, so I went to the map. And when I found the map, I found Abercrombie, but I still couldn't find Abercrombie until I found, you know what, the star. It was like, you, this is where you are. Because if I'm going to get to to there, I have to know where I am. And so what I want you to do today and and how we're going to close this out is I want you to examine something. I want you to examine your motivation. Why are you here? Why are you here? It was said this way about motivation. God made man to go by motives, and he will not go without them any more than a boat without steam or a balloon without gas. So the question is you're here, but why are you here? What's filled you up? What is moving you? Are you in love with the plus? Are you in love with something? Are you in love with someone? Are you in love with the program? Are you in love with the comfort of this? Are you in love with the music that we do? Or has Jesus filled us up? You see, part of the danger of the church is we can't let the plus capture us. We have to fall in love with Jesus alone. Here's the problem of grabbing on to something other than Jesus in the local church. And this is something that a lot of us have experienced. When your something goes wrong, you'll move along. That's what will happen. We see it all the time. People come to church, oh, I love Jesus. I want to be in a relationship with Jesus. But then the children's director said that thing. And 
it's, oh, I expect the church to be this perfect thing. I expect the church to be the thing that drives me. And as soon as people in the church do something that I don't think they should do, then I'm just going to move along. What happens with this every time, if your something is not Jesus, you will go to another place and you will find another problem. And that is not to dismiss Uh, major marks on character and leadership and all those different things, but the reality is, is you should be asking the question why you're here. Because if why you are here is something other than Jesus, when that thing moves along, so will you. If your something is, is, you know, the pastor, you know, there's a new study. I mean, Tom Rainer did a study that 80% of why people come back to church is the preacher. Man, that makes me feel good. But like, do you understand that if you grab on to this guy, Joel, if you grab on to the way I talk or the things I say, that if something goes wrong with me, then you have placed your faith in something that is, uh, doesn't have the constitution that it should because only Jesus can actually stay the person and the worshipful God that you're supposed to worship, that's it. So you cannot place your faith in someone other than Jesus, you can't put your faith in something. Because with pastors, what happens is they get old. I turned 37. That's not what I was talking about. When you listen to me speak, if you've been here for a couple years, what will start to happen is you'll hear me speak and you'll go, I've heard this before. And then when you say that you've heard it before and it's something I've never said before and I've been working on with my entire life, it will make me want to tear my clothes. Because I'm working and I'm changing and I'm growing, but if you grab on to the leader alone, then you're in trouble because it's going to get old and you've heard it before. But the commitment to the local church is so much bigger than just one person. If you grab on to something... Your something will never do what Jesus can. And that's the scary thing. Is if you fall in love with the facade, if it's Jesus plus something, whatever that is, and that's what moves you and that's why you come every day, it's like you're masquerading with someone who you believe is Jesus and then when they take their mask off, it's, it's not who you thought. And it's not just that it's not who you thought, it's, it's not what you got. Because as you engage that something other than Jesus, it will fail over and over again to spill out the joy, the mercy, the love that can only come from an intimate relationship with Jesus. And so if you are dancing around here for something else, you are in trouble of feeling betrayed. Don't fall in love with a different piece. If that piece brought you here, that's great, but it can't be why you stay. And the beautiful thing about when we genuinely put our faith in Christ and Christ alone is some things start to happen to the gathering, some things start to happen to the ecclesia. Just want to go through this quickly, is it makes worship more genuine. You see, when you fall in love with Jesus, you will be mesmerized by him. What he has done, what he teaches, who he is, how he loves you. And when you fall in love with him, Worship is simply giving God his breath back. It's when you realize that he breathed into you and you go, Jesus has saved me. And if you watch people in a worship service who have fallen in love with Jesus plus nothing, 
Their worship is genuine because when you are in the presence of God and you grow in your relationship with God, the response is nothing short of joy and thankfulness and gratitude and praise. It's just what happens when we keep purifying the purpose of this gathering. Another thing that happens is it makes serving joyful. When you fall in love with Jesus and Jesus alone and that, that thing that builds the church, he's Messiah, he's the Savior. When we ask you to give back and you realize what Jesus did for you, you can't wait. People who love God and know that they're loved by God cannot wait to just add, add to a piece of the goodness that God has brought to earth. People who struggle to volunteer or struggle to give financially or, or give their time or their talent are people who honestly probably have fallen in love with something over Jesus. Because when you fall in love with Jesus, you understand what he did and you're, I wanna do that, I wanna be a little Christ, I want to be transformed by him, I want to be like him. And you start to serve with joy and there are people in this building who serve with joy because they've fallen in love with Jesus plus nothing. And it makes sharing Christ a reflex. You know, when, when we talk about being deep and reaching people and having the goal of our faith be helping people know who Jesus is and follow him and helping people live a life that reflects who God is, it's really, really complicated if you constantly think about the strategy or if you're popular, or if people are gonna like what you say. But if every single day you continue to build this thing that you fell in love with that is Jesus Christ alone, the more that you are with him, the more you will want other people to know him and follow him, and your interaction with people will simply be a genuine reflex of being with Jesus plus nothing. The church is built on Jesus plus nothing. And when we fall in love with Jesus plus nothing, other people will fall in love with Jesus plus nothing. And that is the only thing that adds them to our assembly, is when they give their lives to Christ. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says something that is so powerful, it's hard to comprehend. He basically summarizes this Jesus plus nothing idea at the, at the end of this section of Matthew, not the end of the book. But after he says, upon this rock I will build my church, he says this, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And a lot of people think, okay, the gates of Hades, like, you know, gates, is it defensive because it's, it's guarding something or is it, is it offensive on the move? What is the enemy? What is the... The, the, the gates of evil, what are they trying to do? And what this actually means, and when Jesus says this, is he doesn't mean just the gates of Haiti in terms of, of evil. He means something more specific. He means the power of death. The power of death. And when you fall in love with Jesus plus nothing, what you fall in love with is life. Life. A life with God who made you who you are supposed to spend your time with, know more, follow, and enjoy. And what will happen is death will try to creep in on that. And one day, you will be in a spot, you'll be in a place in your life 
maybe towards the end where you realize everything else I fell in love with, but Jesus is gone. Everything else I fell in love with, but Jesus is gone. And in that moment, God will remind you, I have defeated death for you. And because of me, because of you and me in a relationship, you get to have eternal life. And so my challenge to everybody in here, Jesus plus nothing. What is this for you? Would you take a minute and write down what's captivated your heart here? Would you be honest and take an inventory to see if it's, if it's something other than Jesus? And would you join me in a mission to get lots of people committed to the local church and the person of Jesus Christ as you take an inventory for yourself. Christ alone is the cornerstone and nothing else will grow the church but when people believe that Jesus is God and that he saved them. Next week I have a an announcement to make. You do not want to miss it. It is something that is fundamental. It's basically like going in and adjusting a part of our cornerstone to make sure that every single one of us are on the right path and on the same page as a local church. And so if you're here today, this is step one. You need to be here next week so I can share with you something that we've been working on for over a year and so we can continue to build the church the way that Jesus wants us to build the church, which is him plus nothing. Would you just pray with me for a second? Father, I am so overwhelmed by your goodness to me and that you care about me and you know me and you, you love me for who I am, not for what I've done. And that knowing that you're my savior and you've wiped away my sins is what's afforded me the opportunity to be a part of the gathering of followers. God, I pray that through this group of people that we would be so captivated, so motivated by the person of Jesus Christ, that we would give our lives for that. That the purity of our motivation would be revealed. That if all else gets stripped away, we still have everything because we never fell in love with something. We fell in love with you, and you gave us life, and you gave us fullness. You are the cornerstone, in Jesus' name.